G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. And what dangerous idea could be more dangerous than a conspiracy theory? A good conspiracy theory. Do you believe any? What do you think happened uh, when JFK was assassinated? Do you have an opinion? Do you sometimes... What do you think about, like, UFOs and all of these sightings and so on? How do we think about theories that are unconventional, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily regard as being totally crackpot but that don't have the imprimatur, imprimatur, I should say, of officialdom, that, like, you know, scientists and rationalists would poo-poo. One person who does much such poo-pooing and cops some flack for it is Michael Shermer. Uh, He spent his life as a sceptic. For nearly 20 years, from 2001 to 2019, he wrote uh, the sceptic column in Scientific American, the prestigious magazine. He's contributed to Time magazine. He is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine and uh, has a podcast called The Michael Shermer Show. He has all kinds of uh, you know academic credentials and very important things. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast a number of times, which you, you might have heard him on. His latest book is called Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, which is a bit of a must read for understanding conspiracy theories and the people who believe them and how to counter them and what you should believe and shouldn't believe. So I wanted to pick his brain about what it's okay to believe, what it's not okay to believe, what it's rational to believe, what it's irrational to believe, and whether we're seeing a rise in irrationalism in the world, and if so, how to counter it. This is a wonderful rambling uh, conversation that goes all the way across COVID to lockdowns, to wokeism, to religiosity, to Jordan Peterson, to... Whatever else. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, This is the one and only Michael Shermer. I'm in Santa Barbara. My office is in Santa Barbara. Oh, nice. um, I'm just doing my usual stuff, uh, cranking out um, issues of Skeptic Magazine every three months or quarterly. So uh, we're always in a cycle of preparation of articles, editing, soliciting, producing, finalizing, fact-checking, editing, and proofing, and all that stuff. And Have you always been in Santa Barbara, or is this a lifestyle No, uh, well, I've lived here now uh, seven years. My office has been in Altadena all the way up until last year when my business partner, Pat Lindsay, died. She uh, lived down near the office, so I kept it down there for her, and I just drove down one day a week when I was teaching right. also. Because uh, so much can be done remotely now. I mean, I have one editor in Scotland, another one in Canada, <laughs> you know, and authors are all over the world and, you know, it can all be done remotely. So it's not I mean, it does deal. make one wonder why anyone doesn't live in Santa Barbara or some such locale. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I sometimes wonder why, I mean, I kind of can't be remote because I have a radio show on the public broadcaster in Sydney. Uh, but, you know, if you're not literally tied down to some place where the action has to be happening, why is anybody bothering to live in Los Angeles anymore? You know? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm never going back. <laughs> yeah. And, Did you spend uh, time there? Did you live there? Uh, yeah, well, the Pasadena area is where I, I moved up to Santa Barbara from. And whether or not that technically qualifies as Los Angeles is going to be a long philosophical bone of uh, contention. Uh, well, it's a suburb, you know. It's <laughs> Well, this is the problem. Where is Los Angeles? There is an actual <laughs> city, right. but it's not that big. But if you fly over it, it's like, well, where does, where does it stop? It's you know, a country, it's, it's like yeah. like 100 miles, you know, long. Yeah, that's right. The bottom the bottom of it kind of just turns into San Diego and then Mexico, yeah. <laughs> and then you're off to the races. Then you're in Central America. That's fine. Exactly. Uh, well, it's great to talk to you. What's the... I mean, I'm, I was talking to a friend of mine about um, an episode of Joe Rogan that they'd seen, not one of yours, about 
the ancient Egyptian pyramids, and uh, this friend of mine who's very smart was saying, I hadn't realized that there were all these things that the Egyptians were doing with the pyramids that they couldn't possibly have done with the technology of the time and the mathematics, and he was explaining about how there were these air vents that they couldn't have uh, had that were beyond the, the ken of the ancient Egyptians and this and that. And I thought of you, and I thought of this chat, and I thought, I want to get Michael's answer to this that's better than mine about what level of credence can we give to things that might be wackadoodle if they're not if the, if there's no evidence for the the thing that the person's putting forward like well this probably suggests that there was some kind of extraterrestrial involvement or you know supernatural involvement in the construction of the pyramids are we allowed to countenance that without actually giving it our full credence well you should give it well this is called uh, Cromwell's rule uh, Oliver Cromwell famously um, said uh, in the bowels of Christ, um, I think, methinks you might be mistaken. And this is in Bayesian reasoning known as Cromwell's rule, which is you never assign zero, a probability of zero to anything, just in case. Nor should, on the other hand, you assign a probability of 100. Nothing is certain. So, But that said, you can give degrees of likelihood or unlikelihood and in the case of the kind of alternative archaeologies, let's call them, uh, there's sort of two branches. There's the ancient aliens version that um, these monumental architecture, uh, architectural structures around the world could be the Easter Island statues or the Nazca lines or the Egyptian pyramids. And you know, there's hundreds of these um, could not have been built by the people who live there. So they had to be have been built by somebody else who was that. Either the ancient aliens is one version, because of that TV show. Uh, I think I think that's so unlikely it, it it merits almost no attention. Although we've addressed it in Skeptic and provided our explanations for why they're probably wrong. Uh, the more reasonable one is uh, sort of led by Graham Hancock, who I, uh, was on Joe Rogan's show. That's probably the reference you're making. Mm. He's much yeah. more reasonable than the ancient alien guys. He, you know, he's not claiming this was you know some miraculous like nuclear power plant or anything like that, only that the people who built it were probably more sophisticated than we gave them credit for. But he doesn't think it was the ancient Egyptians. He think it, he thinks it was an advanced race of people or whoever, population of people, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of years before the ancient Egyptians. And he often says things like uh, on Twitter, you know, stuff to, keeps getting older. And he's largely right about that, that, uh, you know, dates. What are, does that mean? Stuff just keeps getting older. Archaeological sites are dated uh, older than earlier archaeologists thought they oh, were. Oh, right. Yeah. Right, I see. We start realizing that they were more sophisticated earlier than we thought. And his type specimen is Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is a fairly sophisticated site with giant, huge T-shaped stone uh, monuments that are like 40, 50 tons. But the problem is it's dated at almost 11,000 years ago. Uh, well, it is, yeah, 11,500, so 9,500 BC. And there weren't any huge populations like in ancient Egypt, Egypt or Babylonia or ancient Greece or Rome or any of those huge civilizations with giant populations in which you have largely cheap labor to haul stuff around, <laughs> which has always been the explanation mm. for how they could have built all this stuff. These were, you know, mostly hunter-gatherers, scavengers, um, you know, kind of the, maybe the earliest farmers, but not much. Populations pretty small. So how'd they do it? 
And uh, the site was originally discovered by a German archaeologist named Schmidt in the 1990s. And, and he was impressed, like, wow, this is older than we thought it would be. How did they do it? And his conclusion, as, that, as is that of most archaeologists, is that, well, I guess we need to rethink what hunter-gatherers were able to do. I guess they were more sophisticated than we thought they were. Uh, but that's not the conclusion Graham Hancock and some of the ar uh, alternative archaeologists make. They, they claim, no, they couldn't have done it, and therefore it had to have been somebody else in this advanced civilization. So um, I was on Rogan's show with Graham um, several years ago. I think it was 2018 or so. And, um, you know, we were there almost four hours going through all this stuff. And I kept asking him, what do you mean by advance? Because if you mean by advance, you know, they had metal tools or writing or, you know, pottery, advanced pottery or, you know, or, or even more sophisticated technology. Where is that stuff? I mean, if, if it's, you know, 20,000, 30,000 years old, we should find some archaeological sites, you know, where their trash is, where you find these, this debris, these toolkits. And, and there's nothing like that. Absolutely nothing. And so his answer is, is that I mean advanced in a different way. I mean, like spiritually advanced or, you know, I don't know, something like that. And, uh, right. and that somehow they were able to figure out how to do these large monumental architectural sites without modern equipment, but also without large populations. And, you know, his answer at, the, at that point just goes dark. It's just, well, it's a mystery. Okay. But then, I mean, at that point, Michael, doesn't it become somewhat semantic? I mean, if you're saying... One person, one person is saying it must have been done by an advanced civilization, not advanced in the kind of way that they would have tools that they would leave around, but advanced in their know-how. And the other person is saying, well, it wasn't an advanced civilization. It was just a civilization that had the know-how in order to pull off this feat. What's the difference? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you mean by advanced? <laughs> and uh, so to me, uh, you know, I just think it's good to keep an open mind about not so much of you know who these alternative civilization people were, but but that whoever built it uh, obviously were able to do more than we gave them credit for. So if there's if there was a kind of a bigotry of low expectations in in any field, it would be that well I guess these hunter gatherers were smarter than we thought. Much like um, uh, maybe the last 15, 20 years of archaeology study of Neanderthals. You know who who are telling us uh, that they were a lot smarter and more sophisticated than we've ever given them credit for, and then they and they have a ton of examples of this. So it's like okay, so I guess we need to upgrade, update our view of Neanderthals. Fine. So and that's how science normally works. Mm. The, so what Graham and, and the alternative people do, including the uh, ancient alien people, is what's called anomaly hunting. That is, no scientific theory explains 100% of the data. There's always anomalies that just don't quite seem to fit the mainstream theory. And this is true in all fields of science. So what do you do with those anomalies? And, and, and in science, you don't have to do anything with them. You assign them to some grad student to figure it out. <laughs> or, you know, the next generation will solve it or we'll, we'll alter the theory a little bit. Or maybe somebody will come along and there'll be a completely new revolutionary theory that explains not only all the old stuff, but the new anomalies that we've discovered. And that, you know, that's normal. But the anomalies by themselves don't tell us anything about, they don't construct a whole new theory. No, uh, they don't construct a whole new scientific theory. But I guess what I'm pointing at that I want your coaching on is, is epistemologically, just as for the layperson, in terms of conditionalizing our credences, as a, as a philosopher would say, or like t tweaking the dial of how plausible we regard uh, a scenario as being or an explanation as being, 
I think there's a percept there's a widespread perception that people like you and people like Richard Dawkins and people who hew closely to a, a, a rationalist line are kind of dogmatic and overly self-certain, which I don't think is true, but I think it comes from some sort of a confusion between uh, the scientific method, the rationalist method, and what the layperson is allowing themselves to countenance as being possible, if not probable. And, you know, it's true when you say that if you have anomalies, then you do nothing with the anomalies in science. But it wouldn't be rational for the layperson to do nothing with the anomalies in the way they think about the world as they walk through everyday life, would it? Uh, right, sir. Sure. So again, keep an open mind. You never know. Maybe the anomalies will all add up to something. This would be true for anything like conspiracy theories, you know, 9-11 truthers. You know, they, this is what they do. They chase anomalies. They go, well, what about this and what about that? Like the JFK, my fa- fa- famous favorite example of JFK assassination is the Umbrella Man. There was a guy uh, out, across from the grassy knoll, just right close to where Kennedy was shot, the headshot that killed him. Uh, it was this guy with a, an umbrella. What's he doing with an umbrella? It's a clear, sunny day. No, there's no forecast or rain. Well, it turns out, you know, a decade later, he came forward after it became famous, uh, in which he said, well, it was the umbrella was a sign of protest. I didn't like Kennedy. And, and this was kind of a, 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 a protest against the Kennedy family. Back well, to of course, the, the deep state would send out a stooge to say <laughs> such a thing. Much, much. Yeah, right. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I mean, those are two good examples, though, because like 9-11 is an example where there are so many anomalies that someone who's a conspiracy theorist can throw at you about the melting point of steel and this and you know building seven and all yeah. that sort of jazz you can line them up in one mental in one psychological column in one's head the problem is i mean it's not a problem the be- the, the benefit of uh, of being anti-skeptical i mean of being skeptical i suppose of all of those alternative explanations of 9-11 is that in the countervailing column there are so many implausible things that they immediately extinguish my need to do any investigation into the anomalies because the, the alternative hypotheses are so incredibly unlikely and would require such an amazing sophistication of human coordination and uh, a lack of leaking uh, if the whole thing was planned, for example, or if the, you know, where are all the people on the planes if it wasn't planes that hit? I mean, mm-hmm. the whole thing is just a, uh, it's a, it's a fun house of, of, of crazy mirrors if you, if you go into an alternative. So I don't really need to worry about the, uh, the anomalies. With something like JFK, I think that's a, that's a good example of, something where me as a layperson, like, so I put on my scientist hat, my rationalist hat, my Michael Shermer hat, and I go, I pretty much, I guess, believe the conventional story of, that we've been told about JFK's assassination. But the alternative column is also plausible that, you know, so Lee Harvey Oswald, I don't know what the alternative column is, but let's give it the most plausible version. Let's give it the most plausible spin, which is just simply that Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't acting alone and that there was some greater involvement of a larger number of people. And there may have been people in positions of power in some government, maybe not the US, but some government that knew about what was going on. It was a bigger plan than a lone gunman. That strikes me as a column that's sufficiently plausible that I kind of just hold it in my head at the same time with some level of credibility alongside the conventional narrative. Is that rational? Uh, sure it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's rational because uh, sometimes the alternative theories turn out to be true. That does happen occasionally. You know, the CIA really did plot to assassinate foreign leaders and rig foreign uh, elections in foreign countries to favor the 
fascist dictator of the communist dictator because it would be uh, better for bi American businesses doing business with those countries and so on. Or MK Ultra, you know, the CIA mind control program dosing the hey, U.S. Can you just explain that? Not everyone will know it. Yeah, the, so the MK Ultra program was a CIA program in the 1950s um, to study mind control. It, the fear of, in addition there, to there being a missile gap with the communist countries, uh, particularly the USSR, there was a mind control gap. That is, we know that they were studying mind control. North Korean, North Korea, China, and, and the Soviet Union were all uh, practicing mind control techniques with captured um, prisoners. And so the American government is like, well, we better do something about this. What if, what if they can do it? Uh, we better be able to stay on top of this technology. So the CIA launched this uh, Project MKUltra to study this. And this was all done without congressional approval, without consent or knowledge of the subjects who they dosed with uh, LSD, for example. There's one guy, Frank Olson, who died or jumped out of a window or was pushed out of a window. <laughs> this is one of these unsolved mysteries. <laughs> and uh, so there's enough, so this is my argument in my conspiracy book I call Constructive Conspiracism. Enough conspiracy theories turn out to be true that it's kind of rational to be a little on the suspicious side, a little constructively paranoid, just in case. You know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you, as the line, <laughs> line goes. And so, but again, we have to just kind of couch it in just probability. So, um, you know, take something like the UAP flaps, you know, all these kind of grainy videos and blurry photographs. What do you do with those? You mean the uh, the the U what most UFOs, UFOs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and again, back to anomalies. Well, uh, uh, we don't have to do anything with them. Let's see if we can figure it out. And and no theory explains everything. So, I'll t I take quotes from hardcore ufologists who absolutely believe we are being visited. They say that ninety to ninety five percent of all sightings are easily explainable by natural phenomena. You know, flocks of birds or weather balloons or or drones, or kids' balloons, or spy <laughs> Chinese spy balloons, uh, and, and, and so on. There's like a, two dozen different commonly misperceived, totally natural, mundane objects that people say are UFOs, but turn out to be IFO. Uh, well, they're unidentified. All, the U just means un unidentified. And eventually we identify them. So what do you do with the other 5 to 10%? My answer is nothing. We just try to see if we can figure it out may we may never know uh, uh, you know everything you know some guys driving but, but, hang on there's a contradiction here i think it's not true so when you say what do we do with the other five to ten percent nothing that's a different answer to my question about jfk than to say that it's okay to hold in my head the possibility of and perhaps even probability of alternative explanations being likely like, it strikes me as uh, it, there's something that I think to the layperson smells overly sanguine about the the hand-waving away of, like, the 5 to 10% in the sense that, you know, suppose you, you're afraid that your spouse is cheating on you and there are little pieces of evidence that you start to notice. They smell a bit different. They're making excuses about why they're out. You know, you start to have your suspicions. The caricature of the Michael Shermer that I'm trying to get you to deconstruct is that you would say, well, until I have a uh, 100, until I have proof, until I have like evidence that who, who is this other person that they're cheating on me with, until I can construct a legally binding case, they're innocent until proven guilty, I've got nothing to worry about. Well, okay, <laughs> that's a fair point. Um, it, it's not that you don't maintain doubts or maybe suspicions or maybe you, you, you know, check your, check the email or phones or whatever. But before you divorce your spouse, you might want to be, you know, 
much more confident uh, right. that your accusation is true. And so, and, and but we don't need to. But I don't need to divorce my spouse to start having more suspicions about what the hell's going on in the skies than fine, I did previously. Fine, so I'm not fine. doing nothing with the five steps. Yeah, that's okay. I'm, when I, when I say nothing, it. okay, let me let me clarify. When I say nothing, right. I don't mean just ignore it and don't think about it. I mean don't construct a whole new worldview. This is what people do. I see. With, I see. It's like okay, that that we know we're being visited by aliens. No, we don't. I see. Yes, we do because of these anomalies. No, that that's not what that means. Right. And so we have this idea in philosophy of science, convergence of evidence. So what 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 does the evidence lead us to believe is most likely. So uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, there's just a massive amount of evidence, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence pointing to him as the shooter. So most JFK conspiracy theorists agree, okay, he was at least involved because look at all this evidence. But but he was a patsy. He was set up by the CIA to be the assassin or, or he was one of multiple assassins you know, and so on and so on. But when you press them, okay, where's the convergence of, of evidence for who you think was also involved or who did it? You know, and so, someone like Oliver Stone says, well, I think it was the CIA, Alan Dulles and the CIA. Well, Alan Dulles himself orchestrated it. Do you have any paper trail for this? Any leaked memos from the Pentagon Papers or WikiLeaks or any of the, you know, the Afghanistan Papers, any of the, you know, the most recent one? Is there anything in those leaks um, that converges on a pointing a finger to Alan Dulles or anyone in the CIA? And the answer is no, there isn't. <laughs> okay, so. Right. I mean, you can. But again, I mean, the, the, you know, the conspiracy theorists can say, well, of course they wouldn't be because they're good at what they do. That's well, why they're the deep yeah. state. Uh, but so I, so just to clarify, to put a button on this, is it true, is it fair to characterize your position as saying that the, let's take the, uh, the UFO case, that, it's rational for me to dial my suspicion that we're being visited by extraterrestrials up from 2% to 5%, but yeah. not rational to take it up to 51%. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I, right, I would right. say that. And also, good to remember to separate that from the are they out there somewhere question, which sure, is a SETI question. Yeah, you know, I'm 99% sure they've got to be out there somewhere. Well, and most, SETI si nothing, most SETI nothing scientists would agree with you, or else why are yeah. they bothering to look? Right? <laughs> That's right. It's now, a waste of a lifetime. If you press them and say, you know, well, what evidence do you have that they are out there? And the answer is, well, none. But we have good arguments. You know, there's, a, you know, 100 billion stars in the galaxies, 100 billion galaxies. Every one of them has planets. You know, mm. if only 10% of them have Earth-like planets at the right distance and so on, you crunch the numbers, it, you know, it has to be virtually certain we're not the only one. But, right, but, but there are so many things that can go wrong in those numbers. That I mean, that's actually a good example, isn't it, of a, of a field where you're really not dealing in numbers or facts or evidence. You're dealing in a set of arguments yes. that could be completely flawed and are nonetheless enough to motivate people to devote their entire lives to this to pursuit. And we do not regard those people as cranks. That's right. Yeah, because the SETI program is, is, is staffed by professional scientists. There's no cranks there. And, but it's a different community of people than the ufologists who most to, to almost a person absolutely are certain we've already been visited or are currently being visited. And, uh, it, but the SETI scientists, again, they suspect that they're out there somewhere or else why would they bother looking? But if you press them, they'll say, well, no, of course, we, we, we don't know that for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to do with, a, I guess, a worldview, doesn't it? I mean, one interesting thing that I've seen in recent years is on the question of this kind of dialing up of our of our suspicions from 2% to 5% about something fishy is that the, the past few years with the pandemic has sent 
such a large number of people, especially in the alternative media space and in the people who I kind of bump into, and I'm sure you bump into, um, into, I think they've lost their ability to dial, to accurately dial probabilities anymore. And so there's a lot of, I mean, I'm thinking of people who are, who look at the, at the pandemic, not necessarily as something that was planned and released as a bioweapon in order to, to start encouraging everybody in the world to get used to dictatorial restrictions on their freedom. I'm not talking about going necessarily that far, although that's an, ex- an extraordinarily prevalent view in some circles. But just the, the extent to which they've gone from uh, a, a, 3%, a 3 to 5% level of distrust in institutions and distrust in the news media, all of a sudden, instead of dialing that up to 6%, it's gone up to 80%. Right, you know what I mean. I don't know why. Yes. I wonder if you have thoughts about well, why and, that's and, happening. And to give credit to the other side who are being skeptical of science, you know, the, the the pandemic did reveal to what extent people, scientists, and policymakers who claim that they are just following the science are a bit on the dogmatic side. They are drawing conclusions that probably they should not have been so dogmatically certain of. Like, mm-hmm. we, we know masks don't work. We know masks do work. Oh, maybe they don't work. Or, you know, the masks will stop the spread or it won't stop the spread. The vaccines will do this. Oh, no, they, they'll do that. And it would have been far better, I think, for everybody if somebody like Anthony Fauci or whoever would have, when they get up there before the microphone, said, well, look, you know, it's very early on. We really don't know. We just don't know. We're thinking maybe the masks are a good idea. We don't want to force people to do anything. We think you should probably wear them, but you make your own decision. We'll update you next week. <laughs> and just, you know, do this mm. every week, you know, just because, but, but instead they sound so definitive. And then the average person watching this goes, oh, well, they keep their flip floppers. They can't make up their mind or they're liars or they're conspiring to do stuff to us. And, you know, it's like the lab leak hypothesis was never a conspiracy theory about intentional bioweapons concocted by the Chinese. It was always just... They well, just, it was from some people. Uh, yes, for some people. But but the, the reasonable hypothesis was, was that, uh, that, that it was an accidental lab leak, which has happened in the past. And not yeah. just their labs, but Russian labs and American labs. So, And then all of a sudden it goes dark and you're not allowed to talk about that. That's a crazy conspiracy theory. No, it's not. <laughs> it's mm. totally reasonable. And then all of a sudden it becomes back to 50%. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it was. And then, you know, I, I don't know where it is now. I think it's maybe slightly more than 50% that it was came from a lab. Or, but I, I've read, it, it's very conflicting ideas. So yeah. how about we just say we don't know? And, and then, So do you have a, a kind of a, I mean, there's so much to explore there. Do you have, firstly, like a sociological explanation of what's going on when these levels of certainty are suddenly, like I understand the, uh, the motivation of people in positions of power like Fauci to think people need clarity. We don't, we don't want people to be confused. But then... I mean, and I felt this as working in, you know, a professional media organization, the public broadcaster, the kind of soup of consensus and groupthink that can come about in those scenarios against which I constantly found myself being, (laughs) uh, you know, having fingers pointed at me for excluding. I mean, I was one of the few people on the public broadcaster who was doing stories about possible side effects from vaccines or whether or not, you know, certain, I mean, I wrote a piece in in the main... Uh, broadsheet newspaper in in Sydney in December of 2021, saying uh, these Australian restrictions have have probably gone on for too long. We need a we need a national conversation about how this how this all ends. Um, 
And, you know, at the time that was really edgy and contrarian and you look back on it and you slap your forehead and go, I mean, fuck, of course that, of course that was necessary. I mean, I should have written that four months earlier than I did. Um, so how do you, do you have a kind of psychological idea about how this lack of rational, rationality towards twisting the dials of probability propagates? I do, yes. I couch it in uh, signal detection theory. So picture a two by two grid with four cells. Say the uh, so let's just apply this to the criminal justice system. So upper left cell, the the person being accused really is guilty, and you find them guilty and imprison them. That's a hit. Uh, or in the bottom right corner, the person is really innocent. They didn't do it, and you acquit them. That's a correct rejection. That's good. Those are the two good cells. In the upper right, the person um, did not do it, and and you convict them. That's a, a false alarm. That's a you know, false positive. Um, and the bottom left corner, the person is really guilty, and you acquit them. That's a, a, a type 2 error. Uh, you've, you've missed uh, a real event there. So obviously we want the hits and the correct rejections. We want to avoid the type 1 and type 2 errors. And in a case of criminal justice, this is called Blackstone's ratio, 10 to 1. It better 10 guilty people go free than that one innocent person be convicted. And that's how most criminal justice systems in the West work. And so now apply it to COVID-19. So upper left, cor- upper left cell, it, it, the uh, the pandemic is really going to be catastrophic. This virus is horrible. It's going it's to be like AIDS or, you know, Ebola. It's going to kill 50% of everybody. And you decide to shut everything down and mask everybody, vaccinate everybody, you know, close schools, the whole thing. You know, that was the right decision because you saved tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, you know. And so in the upper right, on the other hand, uh, it turns out it's not that bad and you shut everything down. Well, that's a false positive. You know, you you thought there was going to be a catastrophe where hundreds of millions would die and it, and it was not. And now that's a bad error to make because, you know, the cost of shutting everything down is, you know, is not trivial. Right. And then the bottom left one, you know, the bottom the bottom row then are, you know, just the opposites of those in our two by two cell. So, again, you want to get it and right. Wait, just articulate the bottom. The bottom yeah, okay, one. So, so the, the bottom, bottom left, left is going to be it. Uh, it is really, really bad, and we don't do anything. Right. So that's 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 bad. Also, <laughs> so that's that's probably the most catastrophic. Yes, that would be the square. Catastrophic you know, it does right. end up being like Ebola, but we thought, oh, it's probably not going to be. So right. Yeah, and then the bottom. So the bottom, yeah, and then the bottom right yeah. is uh, it's it's nothing, and we do nothing. So here's my the, explanation for what happens yeah. when you know you're a public uh, official, uh, policymaker. You're the governor. You're the mayor. You're the president, and they stick a microphone in your face and go, "What should we do? Do we close the schools or not?" For the politician or the policymaker, it's black and white. You know, it's like, well, we don't know, but I have to make a decision, yes or no. And so they're going to err on the precautionary principle. They're going to err on the side of it being catastrophic and hope that responding accordingly is not too disastrous if it's not catastrophic. And, and you know, that's what we did largely, you know, shutting down the world economy and and you know, unemployment, the school. You know, now it's looking like school children are largely behind by two years. <laughs> you know, they, they did mm-hmm. not stay mm-hmm. up with uh, remote instruction and Zoom and all that. And so, but, but still, I, I understand, you know, I try to be sympathetic. Like if I was the president and then, they, okay, what do we do? And I don't want the blood on my hands. I say, oh, let's just carry on business as usual and hope for the best. And it turns out it's like Ebola and 50% of my entire population of my country dies. That's on me. 
So I see why, you know, they, they respond that way. Yeah. It, the problem is there's a lot of different con, there are a lot of different strategies and tactics that are embedded in that precautionary principle which have varying degrees of success and varying degrees of harm uh, and what happened during the pandemic was a lot of, I mean certainly in the United States and the UK I think was a, a, just a lot of sloppy uh, thinking about what the actual benefits are. Like, I mean, you know, Australia has this reputation as having gone absolutely batshit crazy during the pandemic because there was, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it, it closed its borders to the, to the entire world, didn't allow citizens to leave, uh, and at least in Melbourne had prolonged periods of, uh, of lockdowns. But the, I mean, the reality is that the schools were much less closed than they were in the United States, and, and life went on much more normally for most Australians uh, precisely because of this immediate closure of the borders and then this massive mobilisation of a contact tracing team where they hired staff from Qantas and other airlines and other places that were obviously no longer going to have jobs and put them to work uh, tracking down outbreaks. And that led to, I mean, in, in, in February of 2021, I went and saw Hamilton with thousands of other people, none of whom were wearing masks mm-hmm. in the theatre at a time when the whole rest of the world had the Delta wave and everything mm-hmm. was was locked down. So, you know, you could probably have made a more judicious... And that's, this is absolutely in no way to say that Australia did everything right. There were absolutely instances of overreach and, uh, you know, it went on for too long and some of the state border closures were silly and there's always instances of police overreach. But, you know, anytime you're trying to do anything big, there are going to be... Uh, bad bits at the at the fringes. I think on the on the whole, kind of assuming that it's going to be, it doesn't have to be Ebola bad, right? It only has to it only has to kill, you know, five percent of right. everyone over the right. age of seventy sure. to be worth avoiding. If the it, it all depends on the cost of what the avoidance is. You know, if the cost is really is that you're going to put every school child back by two years. Maybe that's not a price worth paying. Mm-hmm. But when you then find out that you put all the school kids in America back by two years and that didn't even have a payoff because right. children aren't very good at transmitting the disease right. and it's not very harmful right. to them, then you start to think, well, okay, then the Australian approach actually was more gentle in some ways because so. it always had at the, at the forefront keep children in school and daycare as much as possible, pour huge amounts of money into the not just the economy for big businesses, but for, for, to ordinary people's pockets and just cling on for dear life until everyone can get vaccinated uh, and then open up. And we did have 90% fewer deaths per capita than the US did. So I think it'll, it, it kind of depends on the outcome and it depends on the particulars of the, ta- of the tactic. And I think a lot of people, are, unfortunately, are taking lessons from the pandemic that are quite holistic and broad brush and quite, you know, speaking of going from the 5% probability up to the 80% probability, they're looking at the thing in total and they're taking a whole worldview approach and going, well, this strategy worked or that strategy didn't work. And then rather than sort of teasing out, okay, well, for next time, what bits would we keep and what bits would we not keep and how would we you know, be be most rationable about approaching it. How well do you think we are? We have done in learning about it, and what do you feel not about very, the next time? Not that very, not very well. I think. Um, I guess the question is this: When did we know that, for example, it was not going to kill masses of children, and that it was my, primarily affecting older people and people of, mm. uh, that were overweight with secondary? I mean, pretty early, a, pretty a early. lot earlier, yes. a lot earlier right. than the teachers' unions in the United States were right. willing to concede. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of this became politicized. So, 
you know, whatever Trump is for, we're against, uh, or the, whatever the Republicans want, uh, we're against, or vice versa. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm pretty cynical about the whole uh, school closure thing with the teachers' unions. I don't think they were fearing for their lives. I think they, they could follow the science, and we knew they just didn't want to go back to work. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And look, maybe some of them were afraid of their lives, but it's, at the end of the day, uh, yeah. you know, we're all we're all in a pandemic, and we're all afraid of our lives a little bit, and we all also have to still get up in the morning and do our duties. Yeah, yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what you, this way of characterizing things, this signal detection, it's a really useful tool. Just think about this. Like, so I lecture on this to my students who are, you know, in their 18, 19 years old, you yeah. know, just like, who are you going to marry? You know, what's well, a signal detection problem, right? So in the upper cell, you marry the person who is the love of your life and the perfectly matched person and you live happily ever after. That's a hit. That's good. <laughs> but, uh, or, you know, you're dating somebody, you decide they're not right for me and you reject them and, and you start over. That's a correct rejection. That's also good. What you don't want is the type one error, right? Well, I married the wrong person. Because mm. that's it. and when you're 18, you think, oh, what the, what difference does it make? Well, you know, the longer you're in the marriage, the more you own. You know, if you have children, all of a sudden, it's a pretty, it's a huge hit to get a divorce and go through that, right? So it it matters collecting more data, you know, or, you know, just or cancer detection. That's a signal detection problem, and you know, just like responding to all blips on the on the radar. Uh, I mean, sorry, on the on the X-ray as cancer, is not risk-free because radiation is costly to your body mm. and, and surgery is risky and so on. So most things that, you know, are that we decide about in life are deci- decided under great uncertainty. We really don't know. Even medical, uh, you know, decisions like that are, uh, are made under great uncertainty. Even with all the sophisticated tests we have now, there's still a lot we just don't know. And we're not very good at thinking about those things. So I'd really like is, to see, see more education in, in things like... Uh, yeah, I like this. I like this with this quadrant. Uh, and I encourage people to, to write it out if it sounds confusing, uh, you know, and just go back and listen to it and, and write it. I'm sure it's on your website somewhere, is it, Michael? Yes, you, well, yes, I, I've written quite a bit um, about that. And can you, can you generalize about which is better, the false positive or the false negative? Like take the marriage scenario. I think most people would say you're probably better off letting the love of your life get away than marrying someone, marrying the wrong person. Yes, exactly, because there's not just one right person for us out there, right? There's right. Although when you're 17, or, you think there is. Yeah, exactly, right. Do you know uh, your your country mate there, Tim Minchin's song uh, oh. about this? Uh, he writes this love song about his wife. You know, if it, I think it was called, if, yes. if it weren't for you, you know, if I hadn't met you, I think that's the title. And, you know, the first half of the song is all the wonderful things he discovered by marrying her and she was the right one and all. You know, and, and then if I hadn't met you, then, then it shifts. Well, I would have met somebody else and maybe they were a little funnier than you, but not as smart. Maybe they were better looking, but not as athletic. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, I would have exactly. thought the same thing, like, oh, this is just yeah. incredible that I found. Yeah. <laughs> Your love is one in a million. You couldn't buy it at any price. But of the 9.99900,000 of the possible love, statistically, some of them would be equally nice. Or maybe not as nice, but say, smarter than you, or, or dumber, but better at sport, or. Tracing, I'm just saying, probably have somebody else. 
right. He's great at that. He's a good buddy of mine, actually, Tim. Oh, uh, we're catching okay. up in a couple of weeks. And he, I mean, he has this similar, he has such a beautiful way of pointing out both the the beauty and also the banality of, of everyday life. There's also a song that opens his musical, Matilda. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've seen the, the movie no, I haven't of seen that Matilda one. or the Broadway show, but he wrote a, a musical of the Royal Dahl book, and it starts with this song about how every baby who's born is a total miracle, and you know, and it, <laughs> yeah. the, the miracle of life, and then makes a, a similar, an analogous point to the one that you're making in the other song, which is like, it's incredible that this miracle happens so often, and that <laughs> right. every parent <laughs> right. seems to think that this uh, that this very everyday occurrence is miraculous, and yet it is no less miraculous for that fact. Exactly. It's, it's kind of cute. It reminds um, me of the uh, Monty Python song, you know, every sperm is sacred. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, from the meaning of life. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, cancer detection is an interesting thing. I want to talk about about religion and about new secular religions like uh, like wokeness and whatever as well. But uh, just before we get off this kind of rational way of uh, of avoiding false positives and false negatives. Cancer detection is interesting that you mentioned because last week the uh, Australian government uh, increased, changed the policy about the detection of lung cancer mm. and basically said that uh, the, the scans are now good enough at low enough rates of radiation that if you're between the age of 55 and 75 uh, and you've, you're, a pre, you're an ex-smoker or a smoker, you'll be able to every two years get a free, uh, you know, under our uh, Medicare for, for all system, uh, a free scan. And... It got me thinking about, like, the balance of probabilities on one's health. You know, I've turned 40, I've got little kids now, I have to start thinking about all those things that you have to start worrying about when you get into your 50s, 60s, and 70s. And for me, it would be a no-brainer for me to get basically as (laughs) as many radioactive scans as I needed to in order to avoid the outcome of perishing from one of the likeliest diseases that strike down uh, people every day. So, like, the calculus seems to be on a population-wide level. Don't submit people to screening because that screening, if you, if you take all the 25 million Australians and you, or let's say the 10 million Australians who are over the age of 45 or whatever, and you screen them all... Some co- some proportion of that cohort, some fraction, is going to get cancer as a result of the screening. That's bad from a public health point of view. It's bad for the government's bottom line, uh, and it's bad for those people. On the other hand, if you could tell me that I will get cancer as a result of a scan, uh, but uh, we'll catch it early because I keep getting scans to catch the cancer and, I, and, and I'll survive it and I'll have to endure a terrible three to six months of chemo and radiotherapy, but I'll live. And that's the price that I'll pay for being certain that I'm not going to die of cancer. Well, I would take that bet. In which case, is my individual risk tolerance different from the aggregate of the populations at large? Or is the government being irrational and miserly and they actually should be happy with giving more people cancer in the interests of reducing the number of fatal cancers? I know the, the problem is not that you'll get cancer from the screening test. That's pretty rare. It's the false positives. Uh, and no test is, is 100% certain. They're usually like 90%. You know, a positive test, uh, you know, if you really have the cancer and you test positive, you know, there's a 90% chance that uh, it got it right. 
The problem is the opposite one. If you the false positive rate is low, even if it's five percent, that that five percent is on everyone who takes the test, not on just those who have the cancer or don't have the sorry don't have the cancer but get tested. If everybody gets tested at a certain age, that five percent is a pretty huge number. And if it's a low rate, base rate of the cancer, say it's only 1%, you're going to get quite a few, uh, I mean, just raw numbers of people who, who have a false positive. What do you do with the false positive? Well, that that's where the, the, the risk comes in. Well, if you get surgery, if you get radiation, even a biopsy is not risk-free. I mean, they usually the biopsies, they stick some massive needle in you and suck out mm. some of the cells and, you know, it's, it's not risk-free, okay? So this is the problem. And... Um, it's a little bit, well, okay. So it's, a, it's, again, it's a signal detection problem. Um, we don't know for sure is the little blip on the x-ray cancer or not. So your, your thought experiment at the very beginning, well, why not just scan everything, you know, like every month or something just in case? Well, because your body is probably full of little bumps, little, little blips on the x-ray. They're probably just harmless little, whatever, nodules of, of muscle or tendon or just who knows what they are. They might even be little tumors, but the tumors encapsulated and they're not spreading. They're not growing. And so it's, it's better to what's called watchful waiting in medical circles, just watch and wait and see if it grows. If, if it doesn't, then don't worry about it because it's not going to kill you. Well, Well, I mean, the problem is with that works with some cancers and as you know, it doesn't work with lung cancer and pancreatic cancer and some of the deadly, some of the deadliest cancers, because by the time you've watched and waited, it's too late. That's right. So it depends on the cancer, correct? Like the AMA yesterday, American Medical Association here uh, released a statement that they think women should get um, breast cancer mammograms after the age of 40, not 50. So they've lowered it. And, you know, the test is a little bit better. And so therefore, earlier screening, catch it early, then it won't kill you and so on. Okay. Mm. But again, I mean, the, the false positives. What uh, this is why you know a second, so, a second opinion, additional scans, just to make sure because the intervention is not zero risk. Right, it's not zero risk, but it's pretty much zero risk that it's going to kill you. If it's low, yeah, right. So uh, again, so every, if my if, again, it depends what we're like. It depends how. I, so, so I guess what I'm sort of groping towards is maybe I as the father of young children uh, at this phase in my life, have a lower tolerance for death and a higher tolerance for uh, invasive procedures than another person might. And the government is trying to do a balancing act about everybody's preferences. But I personally would take a false positive, would take an almost unlimited number of false positives if it was a guarantee that Mm. I was not going to die. You know what I mean? Like, I, I take your point about the larger the larger denominator. So, yeah, if you're going to screen 10 million people and then there's, you know, and 5% of those are false positives, well, that's half a million people. And if it were the case that 5% of the false positives died as a result of the biopsy, that's 25,000 deaths mm-hmm. out of the 10 million people. So you wouldn't tolerate that. But if the... If the rate of death from a false posit- from the biopsy as a result of a false positive is so vanishingly small as to be a rounding error, then the other right. than the cost and the hassle, where's the harm? Well, but but the cost and the hassle is not 
trivial. <laughs> you know, this right. is one of the things that drives up healthcare costs. And I remember back yeah. in the 90s, I think it was, when CAT scans started becoming much more popular and people started getting whole body CAT scans. You know, I'm just going to scan, I'm going to look for everything. And they were pretty expensive, and and uh, health company healthcare companies started covering it. And then, then they realized almost everybody has some little blip on the CAT scan <laughs> uh, somewhere, and, right? And, but they don't have any symptoms. So then, what are you doing? Why why worry about it? Right, and of course, right. some cancers are symptom free. You know, like um, like I guess a kidney um, or a prostate cancer. No, sorry, um, the pancreatic cancer, the one that killed Steve Jobs. That's pretty symptom free until it's too late, right? So you, yeah, the, yeah. the ones that are that, that are, yeah, they'll kill you, and that it, they're hard to diagnose. Maybe you should pay more attention to those, right? So colon mm, cancer, mm. you can't. There's almost no symptoms until it's too late, right? So I'm 68, so I get you know I, every five years I get the. I, th I think I'm supposed to do it every five years, you know. Oh, yeah. be, you're you're complaining about hitting your forties. Oh man, come on, dude, to be forty again, <laughs> you got nothing to complain about. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I have uh, a I seven. Mean, and I have a seven-year-old now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So right. I got to stay uh, healthy. I. If anybody should be worried, it's me. In fact, it, for his seventh birthday this last weekend, he he blew out the candles on his cake, and we said, "You get to have a birthday wish." He goes, "Okay." And, and well, what was it? He goes, "I hope." I wish that we get to live forever and that I get the new Series 5 Akeda Warrior toys. <laughs> it's like, okay. I can help you with option two. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, give, me, give me a little time on option one. Uh, it needs a little more work. Uh, in Australia, the government sends you a little bag to shit in once you have hit 50 or 55. When you say that colon cancer is oh, hard to catch, you right. get a free... You know, you get a free thing. You're supposed to scoop your... Really? And they, this is one of those... Oh. Yeah, it's one of those public health things that is actually very cost-effective. It saves a lot of money in the long run. Wonder Just why... send it out to people automatically. Yeah. And you do a little scoop, you put it in, it tests for... Uh, it's a fecal occult test, I think. Uh, you know, just testing well, this from is... microscopic blood particles. Right, this is one of the things that AI is supposed to be able to do for us soon is, you mm. know, personalized medicine. So your toilet is actually a medical test every day. Right. Every time you pee and poop into the thing, it's doing a test. It's looking for the... Oh, the conspiracy theorists are going to love that, <laughs> oh, Michael. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're sending your inf private information back up the chain to the deep <laughs> right. state so that the CIA can snoop on your own what they, you've been eating. They know what I'm doing. <laughs> they know, and they're going to they're they're gonna start forcing me to eat better if I'm not having enough fiber in my diet uh, yeah, by examining yeah, yeah. my shit. Um, let's talk about religion. Um, there's, uh, I saw you tweeting about this, uh, this, this, there are new slippery definitions of spirituality, religion, and God that are being popularized, um, specifically by Jordan Peterson, who's great at dodging, uh, <laughs> concrete questions about such things. You know, sure I have a lot is. of time for, I, I did have a lot of time for Jordan, but, um, it, gee, it can be infuriating when people just redefine the question away by saying something something like, uh, you know, uh, well, instead of me summarizing his point of view, why don't you summarize what you understand uh, Peterson's understanding of religion to be, and then let's see if we can converge. Well, I, you know, of course, I don't know what's actually in his heart, but, you know, I, 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 I think he thinks there's some sort of higher power, whether he thinks it's Yahweh and, and the Christian religion is the right one is, is maybe another thing. But, you know, I think for Jordan and, and people like him, um, religion provides a kind of structure for uh, organizing your life, for having morals and values and principles and goals. 
you know, wherever you get them from. A little bit like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, you're supposed to believe in a higher power. They don't care what religion you are. Just the idea is just, that, you know, there's there's something bigger than you and that puts your problems into context and it gives you goals to aim at and you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, metaphorically, mythically, psychologically, you know, these kind of truths are different from empirical truths. Of course, people like Richard Dawkins and myself, we want to know, but, you know, was Jesus really resurrected? I mean, I mean, he was really dead, not just in a coma or, you know, whatever. He was actually dead for three days and they roll away the tomb stone and he's gone. And then he comes back. You know, did that really happen? That's what, you know, so someone like Jordan says, well, you know, you should bury your own cross or forgive people or it's mythically true. No, no. <laughs> you know, when you press him or anybody like that, you know, someone like Richard or myself might say, but, but do you think it really happened? And I understand the mythic, mythical truth or whatever. And, you know, these things are, you know, literary truths. They carry value. But, you know, in, in the realm of uh, empirical truths, did it really happen? That's hard to say what Jordan thinks about that. I suspect. And then, yes, and, yeah. and then you, what you encounter is uh, a word salad of, well, it's true because it's been functionally useful for so many cultures right. to believe in right. God, right? So right. what does it even mean to say that it's not true if so many different uh, cultures and civilizations around the world have held that there are deities? Like, it's obviously a kind of essential component to the human experience. So it's true in the sense that it has utility. Uh, right, right. And that I've never quite understood that. Like, that just seems like an invalid chess move to me. Me too. <laughs> I mean, it's like saying, well, people get value out of Star Wars and, and, and the uh, Chronicles of Narnia or, the, you know, whatever the trilogy uh, that you're into. Okay. Mm. Yeah, obviously, you know, or, you know, I like Shakespeare plays. Okay. I get value out of them. Fine. But so what? <laughs> I mean, it's a, mm, it's a little mm. anodyne. Uh, you know, you wouldn't ask, you know, the brothers Karamazov, were there really brothers Karamazov? Well, you're, it's, a, it's an irrelevant. Was there really a Harry Potter? What you're at? This is an idiotic question. You know, did it really happen? No, but that's, you're missing the point. You know, you're, the value of of the story carries a different kind of truth, you know, about human nature, human relationships, people lie or cheat or fall in love, you know, deceive each other. These kinds of things are all, you know, kind of truths about human nature that novels tease out and good novels do it really well and sophisticated. You know, that's a different kind of truth, though, than, you know, what's the age of the earth or you know something mm. empirical like that. And so but they're all sort of, I mean, all of these things, the Peterson case, I think would be like, like there are these kind of Jungian archetypes that all of these things are pointing to, which, which may be true. This, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. So let me just articulate this as a non-Jordan Peterson idea in case I'm getting it wrong. But there is an idea that it could be a little bit like the truthfulness of numbers or, or something. You know, th there is a, pi is a real phenomenon in the real world, regardless of whether or not people had stumbled across it. And maybe there are sort of, uh, archetypes of the f fables uh, that are kind of woven into the fabric of human civilization that are not of our creation exactly, but that the we're sort of stumbling upon. And that is that is what all religions are a kind of shimmering reflection of and that we're, mm -hmm. we're grasping something that's out there uh, imperfectly, but it, it, that it doesn't mean that it's not there just because we don't, you know, have absolute certainty about the literal truth of the Gospels. Yes, it could be that religions discovered certain truths about human nature, human societies, 
uh, early on by accident, just trial and error, trying different things. You know, what kind of commandments should we have with sort of moral rules and principles, prescriptions and proscriptions should we give our people? And, you know, through trial and error, you get it, you, you get it largely right. You know, it's, it's, for the most part, it's good not to lie. Uh, too much deception uh, ruins human relationships and and the fabric of society. We need to have a, kind of a default to truth. Most people tell the truth most of the time, roughly speaking, and that works pretty well as a principle. And and okay, so we have a commandment: thou shalt not lie. You know, except for you know if you're hiding uh, uh, hiding uh, Anne Frank and the Nazis come to your door, yeah, you should lie. Yeah, okay, there's exceptions, mm. <laughs> right? So. I think religions have done a lot of that, you know, like you should get married, don't have kids out of wedlock, you know, these kind of basic conservative Christian type principles. Some of them are pretty good on average. So, you know, when Jordan says, you know, you should make your bed, clean your room, get your life together, have some goals, you know, work out every day, you know, and, and, and have relationships and be honest, you know, it's, there's, you know, they're kind of anodyne, but they're true by, I guess, trial and error. This is the way people are. And, on average, it's better if you do those things than not. So his 12 rules and 12 more rules. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, they're not deep truths. I mean, you know, they're the kinds of things religious people and spiritual leaders or whatever have been saying forever or self-help gurus. You know, it's it's basically Tony Robbins or uh, Norman Vincent Peale. You know, these kind of people, you know, it's really basic stuff. And why is Jordan so popular? It could be that the generation that he appeals to, Gen Z and millennials, maybe a little bit, you know, they just didn't get that growing up, maybe because of the decline of religion, uh, the decline of families, you know, maybe a lot of these guys just don't have male figures, father figures or whatever, grandfather figures, who set them down and go, okay, here's the deal, here's how life works, here's what you should do, mm. you know, mm. and, uh, you know, like my, you know, my father, I had two fathers, a stepfather and a bio dad, you know, they both did this with me. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> whatever. And then later I go, oh, yeah, that was a pretty good idea, I guess. <laughs> mm. You know, and maybe some people, you know, they go to a Jordan Peterson talk, they've never heard this. Make my bed, work out, have goals, write them down. Wow, that's unbelievable. Mm. I've never heard that. It's like, really? You never heard that? I mean, it, it's interesting, though. <laughs> like, that, uh, that is a, a slightly unkind caricature to his followers, I think, in the sense that, there's a, there, that we have done some sort of a disservice to, and I wouldn't say it's just millennials. We always talk about millennials and Gen Z <laughs> yeah. or Z as if they're young kids now. You know, they're, they're middle-aged. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the next generation. Is, yeah. yeah, it's the next generation. Um, yeah, sorry, Gen Y, not Gen Z. It's the... It's the Gen Z and younger who are being brought up in an environment. I mean, I wonder what you think about this, where there is, it is confusing. Like gender roles are confusing. The expectations around how we're supposed to treat each other are confusing. The uh, expectation as to whether or not you should regard yourself as being an upstanding, rational human being who does not treat other people with kid gloves, but is rolling with the punches or whether you should be an extremely sensitive treading on eggshells person who tries to go with the flow is confusing. The desire to not be uh, interpreted as a, a bigot or as being as punching down or as uh, being blind to the concerns of historically disadvantaged communities is confusing when it comes in conflict with what you regard as being common sense or justice or fairness or egalitarianism, equality or whatever. Like, there's just a lot that's swirling around. And in that context, it's understandable to me that 
someone who, who, who brings back the traditional conception of what it means to take responsibility for yourself finds a, a you know, a, a, a willing ear. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I wrote an essay on this, uh, have arch- what I call it, have archetype will travel <laughs> about Jordan Peterson. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, some of the archetypes are useful, uh, you know, the, the kind of things we, we've been talking about. And, and the reason is, is because the world is a, a harsh place. It doesn't, the universe doesn't care about us, you know, entropy and the second law and things are just running down. And if you don't take care of things, they will fall apart. You know, that's kind of his larger message, which is, uh, you know, your job in life is to do something extropic against entropy, you know, just carve out a little niche of order in the universe of chaos. And that's a good thing. And, um, you know, I think there's value in that. And yeah, I didn't mean to oversimplify, I guess, his followers or whatever. I mean, I've been to a couple of his talks. It's like, yeah, okay. But I've also been to Tony Robbins' talks. It's like, okay, it's inspirational. <laughs> you know, mm. and, and uh, so I get that. And, and it could be that people need to be reminded of this pretty regularly, like daily. Like we did a, uh, a issue of Skeptic on the self-help movement. Uh, Steve Salerno wrote this book, uh, Sham, Self-Help and Actualization Movement, S-H-A-M. He was skeptical <laughs> of this. He was the uh, Rodeo Press editor for their self-help books. And he, he noticed that the number one predictor of who would buy one of these books was people who already bought those books, those kind of books. Well, if they worked, how come you need to keep buying new books? self-help books and you know what do you need the posters for and the in the tapes to listen to every day right, but isn't that a, isn't that a bit like saying you know I've, you've already been to a therapist why do you need to yes, keep going so back every two yeah. weeks like aren't you, aren't yeah we, we are flawed human beings we need to we need we need constant reminders about how to yeah, get so out that's of my, our own heads. yeah that's my current take on this is that it, because every day is a new day and the universe again is not going to care about you tomorrow so yeah. it's up to you and you get up and you go okay and there's the poster on the wall oh yeah that's right I gotta get and out also there, there are there, I mean, there are a bunch of different ideas in there. You know, I've done some Tony Robbins as well, and I would say that Robbins is much more focused on tools, on specific practices and practical tools and practical ways of approaching things, whereas Jordan Peterson is much more about grand, arm-waving, like philosophical, cosmic <laughs> interpretations of what it means to be a human being. Uh, and maybe you only need the latter uh, every so often, but a reminder of, uh, oh, yeah, I should probably, uh, you know, structure my time management in this particular way is... You know, that can be as simple as as the getting things done process or something like that, which to me is closer to the Robbins philosophy than the than uh, than Peterson's philosophizing. Yeah, that's a that's a good distinction to make. I think any any why question like that is likely to have an overdetermined uh, uh, answer. But you know, another thing I think that appeals to, uh, to people about Jordan is. Uh, you know, he's taken a stand against a lot of the ambiguity you talked about. You know, what about uh, trans people or the, you know, the, the critical race theory and the woke progressive agenda? And, you know, and he's he's kind of gone to the right. You know, he now works with Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's group. And, you know, he's large. He's pretty much a conservative, whether he calls himself that or not. I don't know. But that's kind of the stance he's taken. And I think it's the same uh, thing for the appeal of Trump. You know, he's willing to stand up there and stick it to the libtards and really say what I'd love to say at work, but I can't. Right. right? And uh, right. I think there's some I think there's some value in that for people. But with uh, there is a difference. Like with Trump, there's tro- Trump is a troll. Right. I mean, Trump will say whatever uh, Trump. 
is a master sort of stand-up comic who goes yes. out before crowds for four hours and A-B tests material <laughs> right. and gauges the reaction and whatever gets the biggest roar becomes his new shtick and that becomes policy, right? I mean, that yes. was the wall. That was a whole lot of his policies were just him kind of throwing things out there and seeing what, what worked in the same way that a stand-up does and sees what, see what's, what gets the laughs. With Jordan, there was something so refreshingly brazen about his... Uh, impoliteness around culture war issues mm-hmm. that I think shocked people into a, a sort of grudging admiration for you know his his bluntness. I mean, even today, it was, I was interviewing Coleman Hughes on this show the other day, and we were talking about uh, gender disparity in boardrooms and CEOs and things like that, and and I found myself shocked and taken aback when someone is rational and polite and mild-mannered as Coleman said, wait, are you talking about the disparity between the number of, the absolute number of women in CEOs' positions or the disparity between the number of women who want to be CEOs Mm. and the number who are in CEO positions? Mm. And that's a distinction that is never made. Mm. Interesting. That sounds immediately to me like it's sexist, Mm -hmm. but it's not. Right. It would get accused of being sexist because mm-hmm. it's implying that there is some fundamental, maybe even biological difference between the aspirations of the sexes and that maybe it's eliding a whole bunch of cultural, uh, ex- you know, culturally sexist explanations about women not being in, uh, raised to aspire the same way that men are or something. Well, this, but is, ju- yeah, this is the yeah. le- leaky pipeline theory for, you know, why there aren't more... Uh, women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies because there's fewer of them applying because by the time you apply, you've already had to work, you know, 80-hour weeks for 20 years to get to that place where you could even do that. And and more women than men are choosing to become mothers or whatever and do something different because who the hell wants that job anyway? Well, not not many people. Well, that's true. I mean, <laughs> even, if you, even if you removed motherhood from it, I, I, you know, at one point that Jordan Peterson makes is, that there are that the sort of bell curve distribution of males is wider than females. There are a lot yes. more men yes. in prison. There are a lot more homeless men, and there are also a lot more uh, Nobel Prize winning men. Like the tails are longer with men. We're we're a lot we're a lot dumber, and in some respects, we're <laughs> actually smarter. Like the you know smarter in quotation marks. You have to be a little bit of a psychopath to want to be a world leading CEO. Like it's not a it's not a coincidence that Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and and Jeff Bezos are males. Like these are exactly. this is a particular type that right. it, that does map onto not all, you know, you can't say 100%, you can't say there are no women like that at all, but that it maps onto onto sex. And that's become something quite taboo. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what got Larry Summers at Harvard into trouble. And that's all he was saying. Why aren't there more uh, women in STEM at the high end, like at Caltech, MIT, Harvard, and so on, in physics and uh, and, cosmology and so on? Well, it's not because they're a bunch of misogynists behind closed doors refusing to hire women. There just aren't as many women applying. Uh, why not? Well, because there aren't as many PhDs in those fields by uh, by women. Well, why not? Because there aren't as many graduates, under, undergraduates in the, well, why not? Because they're dropping out early. I mean, they're not going in those fields much early. Well, why not? You know, so you end up at some what's loosely called a systemic explanation. Well, you know, is it back in sixth grade when, you know, the the, the, the math teacher discourages the girls from continuing? Or is it just they're not that interested? So, 
you know, Jordan's explanation, not just his, but um, that, um, you know, there's a difference between men and women, boys and girls on interest in things versus people. So nobody says, well, how come there's so many women pediatricians? And why aren't men mm. going into pedi- you know, pediatrics? Well, because women are more interested in people and men are more interested in things. That's the explanation for them. Right, That's the right. leaky pipeline. And so pulling out uh, you know, and taking the kind of big uh, anthropological and, uh, and spiritual look at all of these debates because we don't have time to go over them uh, individually, the, you know, it's, it's been remarked upon that the decline of religion has led to some sort of emptiness, which may be partly the emptiness that Tony Robbins and Jordan Peterson are filling. But that emptiness may also be finding sucker in the new religion of social justice, right? Mm-hmm. This is, you know, John mm-hmm. McWhorter wrote a book about, yeah. uh, you know, the sort of the religiosity of of this current moment. Uh, I'm trying to avoid the word woke because it's such a hoary old cliche. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, there are the idea of the confessional, of uh, the public, uh, the public shaming, the exclusion of the of the apostate, uh, the um, the piety, the professions of piety, the the in-groupism and and out-groupism. These are very classic kind of witch-hunty, uh, religious identity-driven uh, habits of the human condition that we're seeing exemplified in various ways. So I wonder what you I wonder what you as a sort of rationalist think about that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not just recent. I mean, Marxism, Leninism, uh, Stalinism, Trotskyism, you know, those are all secular religions where, you know, they had the purity uh, tests and, and uh, witch hunts and trials, show right. trials and so on. And on the right, McCarthyism yeah, and yeah. Christian, you yeah, know, extremist yeah. uh, evangelism. I love the story about uh, Ayn Rand and and uh, the objectivists versus the libertarians. And, you know, that the, they had these infights of like, who was the true, true economic libertarian freedom person, you know? And, you know, it's like, I think we should have like a 1% tax. Oh, you're a communist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then you're oh, out. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't realized that. So the, so the Randian the objectivists were in a battle, were they, with the libertarians? About oh, yeah. Who was the, yeah, who was the, the purist. purist, right? But feminists, you know, feminist movements also went, you know, who's the purest feminist? And even even atheism went through that after, really, it was nothing in, in, until the kind of the 1990s. It started to pick up with the science wars and creationism. And then in Richard's book was published, Dawkins, in uh, 2006, The God Delusion. You know, mm. that was a massive bestseller, and it kind of brought atheism onto the map along with... You know the new atheists and Sam Harris and Richard uh, and uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens and so forth, and then it became like, who's militant enough? Are you really a militant? Are you like Hitch? You got to be like Hitch. You got to just right. stick it to the morons who believe this bullshit. You know, yeah. and then it's like, well, but I don't really want it. I don't think that's a good strategy. I don't really feel like uh, insulting people like that. That you're not a true atheist, right? <laughs> and then there was another cut with the, the atheist plus movement. The plus being social justice. It's not enough to be an atheist. You got to be a far left woke progressive atheist because that's where the real. Oh, okay, so you know then the cut you know just got even more like that, and uh, I you know I actually think this is probably true of all social groups. I think they splinter. You know, Freud called that the the what is the bigotry of small uh, was it the narcissism oh, of small, small differences. differences. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, you know, all groups seem to go through this and. 
I don't know. It's you know, it's not good for society, and social media only feeds on that on a larger scale. Yeah. I mean, it's not just the the problem though is not just the narcissism of small differences. It's the it's the rise in uh, I guess tribal intolerance. The, the the characterization of of different. I guess the the narrowing of the scope of what ideas are permissible in polite conversation, and yeah. uh, uh, you know the the dogmatism with which certain ideas that don't conform to a conventional and you know let's just say what those ideas are. For example, that there might be uh, genuine biological differences between males and females. Uh, that uh, um, uh, that there might be uh, what I'm just blanking on what, what on one of the other. Oh, so uh, you know that there might be uh, something. Uh, that was good about colonialism. That mm. there might be an exaggeration of uh, of police violence against uh, people of color in the United States. That there there could be any differences, uh, any cultural explanations for differences in outcomes between different races in the United States. I mean, there are all these hot button things uh, without even going into the into the world of whether or not uh, trans women are the same as as uh, cisgender women. The, the, all of the there are a whole bunch of ideas that you could throw around here in a boisterous, rambunctious society that people could test and push back on and disprove that are not being tested and pushed back on and disproven because they're not even allowed to be aired in the first place without the person who's airing them being excommunicated from the conversation. And and it's that I I don't know whether or not I'm only perceiving that as being new because I'm a fuddy duddy now middle aged uh, cis white male. Uh, or whether there actually is a curtailing of the conversation. Or maybe the curtailing was just different in the past, and if you were a trans woman of colour, then you definitely felt excluded from the conversation when you tried to pipe up. Well, it just depends on the time scale. I mean, the Overton window, yeah, it's shrinking. But but really, I mean, may, maybe you're just, it's on that particular topic at this particular time, but there's always been taboos in society of what you're allowed to talk about or not. That's, that, that's not new. Maybe it's, You don't think that there are more taboos now? They're just different? I think they're mostly just different, and also, but also amplified. I can't tell you how many like conser- conservatives I've had on my podcast who ramble on about how we're never allowed to speak about this, and like we're talking about it right now. Yeah, <laughs> and I've seen you on Fox News like twenty times. What do you mean you're not allowed to talk about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently you are. No, I mean on these other shows. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, and yet they're pointing at something that's not completely fictitious. I mean, I know what they. It depends on... It's a case-by-case basis, I suppose. But I sort of know what they mean, that there's like a... You know, someone was talking about someone was talking about Louis C.K. to me because mm. I went and saw Louis when he was in Sydney and, you know, that was a conflicted thing. And so mm. someone was saying, how could you give him money? And um, and I was saying, well, I mean, he's he's paid a price. Mm-hmm. All of None of his shows are available anymore on streaming. He, he hasn't... He's not hired anywhere to do anything and this person said he's just sold out Madison Square Garden <laughs> and I said well yeah he sold out Madison Square Garden by hiring out Madison Square Garden and then selling tickets yeah. on his website yeah. and making a profit like and so this person was saying he hasn't been cancelled and I said well what would cancellation constitute like you chop his head off like what, <laughs> how you know right. he's been cancelled right. he has he has been excluded from all of the engines of of the entertainment industry, he was dropped by everyone and everything, and then he went on the web and started selling stuff for himself. So yeah, he still has hands. You know, he still has a mouth. Ma- you haven't <laughs> yes. sewn his mouth shut. Yes. But to say that that means that there was no penalty is ridiculous. Yes, and so I, I think yeah, these right. people are still going on Fox News and they're still saying all of their you know hateful bullshit about trans kids. 
But that doesn't mean that they're not pointing at something about the institutions of media and polite society, that they're pointing at something, at some kind of dynamic that's going on at places like the New York Times and at Brooklyn cocktail parties that is a little bit McCarthy-like. Sure. Uh, yeah. Taste. No, I, I, I recognize it. If I was in my 30s and, and, you know, just an assistant professor and, you know, I'd probably just keep my mouth shut. It's, you know, it's... Yeah, exactly. for sure. Yeah, there, there yeah. are risks. Uh, I want to ask you some first date questions, which is for premium subscribers. These are like Rorschach questions that are just off the top of your head about completely random things just so people get to know you a little bit better. Uh, is that okay? Yeah, sure. What's the best uh, cuisine? <laughs> uh, well, in Southern California here, Mexican food. Man, there's nothing better than guacamole and chips and tacos and burritos. Yeah, I like that. Okay, we'll have to agree to disagree about that. Even having lived in, <laughs> even having lived in Southern California, I still. Uh, I, I what still, do you, you know, like? How many ways can you mix together beans and rice and you know, well, I mean, okay. and corn? You know? <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I would say Thai, probably like mm. good, good, oh, sa- I do. good we, Southeast Asian. We have a good Indian food place here. I love Indian oh, food. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah uh, Can't you have uh, multiple bests? Why does it have to be the best? On this show, there's one best, Michael. I see. That's it. <laughs> Although it's funny that you say that because I have a running, uh, I have a running joke with my husband about exactly who, whether or not it's appropriate to have favorites of everything. He loves having like you know, his, he has, he still has a favorite color, and so I'm like, you're a grown man. You don't have a favorite color. What do you mean your favorite color? What are you a child? <laughs> and he always asks me my favorite something, and I'm always like, I don't have a favorite. You know, I'll, I'll give him, I'll give him five things. You know, what's your favorite country? I'll say, well, Switzerland's the prettiest, but then you know, I really like. And he's like, just tell me your favorite. I'm like, I can't. There's no, what do you mean? Um, so talking about countries, though, why don't we uh, go there as well? What's the what's the loveliest uh, country you've been to? If you'd like to hear the rest of my conversation with Michael Shermer, including an unexpected and entertaining anecdote about an evening he spent with Christopher Hitchens, uh, please become part of the community, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com, where you'll get your own personalised podcast feed. 